The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome to a very special edition of Pure Thoughts. I'm Bruce Bernstein. This show usually is devoted to legendary athletes where we hear in their own words what made them tick. But today, our guest was an amateur athlete in several sports, but his career as an NBA official is what made him a legend. Pure Thoughts is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Pure Thoughts comes direct from legends of the game as they share secrets of their success. Steve Javi is a man of many interests. He refereed NBA games for 25 seasons between 1986 and 2011. Along the way, he called more than 1,500 regular season games, 243 playoff games, and 23 NBA Finals games. After retiring from calling games due to chronic knee problems, he became ESPN and ABC's officiating analyst, which is where Steve and I met. You see him on the high-profile ESPN and ABC broadcasts from the Replay Center in New Jersey. And Steve was always a man of faith, and two years ago, he became an ordained deacon in the Catholic Church. And yes, we will discuss the spiritual as well as the athletic with Steve, so we'll get to that in good order. But first of all, welcome to Pure Thoughts, Steve. Uh, thank you, Bruce. Always, always good to hear you. Always good to see you, Bruce. Uh, feelings mutual, Steve. Okay, we got to start with baseball because I know baseball, you know, why are we starting with baseball? Well, you know, pitchers and catchers are now in camp. Uh, you were a baseball player at the beginning. You started out as a pitcher. So growing up in Philadelphia, were Jim Bunning and Steve Carlton your guys? Without a doubt. A matter, matter of fact, probably the most memorable game I ever watched at Vet Stadium was Steve Carlton against Bob Gibson. And I'm telling you, Bruce, it was a, actually the game ended up one nothing. Uh, I believe Gibson might have beat him that that day. It was in 72. No, he went being in 72. Carlton probably won because he won he won 27 that year. And I think the game took an hour and 45 minutes, if that. Both those guys were just the best pitchers in the game and didn't waste any time whatsoever. You know, so it was probably pretty cool. But Bunning also, his Father's Day perfect game, I still remember. Richie Allen, I was always a fan of Richie Allen. Um, and here's a guy. He's an obscure name, but for some reason as a kid, just loved him. Don Demeter. And Don Demeter was an outfielder for the Phillies. Actually, he was, I think, acquired in a trade with Detroit, the uh, Tigers. And I just, for some reason, just took to the guy as a young kid and just loved the guy, Don Demeter. Some, some great memories you're bringing back now, Bruce. I remember Don Demeter because I'm an old Red Sox fan. And I think towards the tail end of his career, maybe in like 66 or 67, he actually ended up on the Red Sox for a minute. And I remember I had his baseball card and I remember looking on the back, he started as a Brooklyn Dodger. Ah, uh, uh, right. No, it's, a, it's an, an old Connie Mack stadium in Philadelphia. My dad, he would take us at least to one uh, twilight doubleheader they used to have back then. You know, where you have the first game started before dark and then the second game right afterwards. And I just love going to the Connie Mack Stadium and just I, I still can envision the big Coca-Cola sign that Richie, Richie Allen hit a home run over and so on. And the clock that Wes Covington, who was an outfielder, also a left handed hitter, hit, you know, hit a ball right into the clock and everything. Really some cool memories. Steve Carlton, although later in life, we found out that he had some, shall we say, unorthodox ideas about, you know, society and whatever. But I remember when he won the Cy Young Award in 1972, the Phillies were a last place team. Cy Young winners don't pitch for last place teams, except that Lefty did. I know. It just, it just goes to show you his talent. When he was at the peak of his career, how unhittable he really was. That slider that he had. I remember, what was it, Willie Stargell once said, trying to hit Steve Carlton's slider is like eating soup with a fork. <laughs> you just can't do it, you know? Willie Star Willie Stargell was a was a I, I remember the year he went into the Hall of Fame 1988 it was very memorable he was a great uh, he was a great uh, leader pops as they used to call him back right, then right yeah all right you mentioned your dad a few minutes ago 
it almost feels like officiating, umpiring, refereeing is in your DNA. I mean, your dad, uh, Stan, was an NFL official for 29 years, did several Super Bowls. Your uncle was an American League umpire for a number of years, uh, Uncle Johnny. Uh, so when you were a kid, when did you start asking them questions about their professions? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I um, I didn't plan on continuing the uh, the chain of of officials. That's for sure. I uh, obviously wanted to be a baseball player, like a lot of kids growing up. You want to play a sport as a profession, and um, but as a kid growing up, it was really kind of interesting because my uncle John would come to the house, especially like on holidays or something like that, and my he and my dad would sit around and just start talking about the, the games and the sports. And me and my buddies would just be almost like sitting there at, at, you know, just listening to everything they're saying and taking it all in. Um, and I still remember like my favorite Christmas gifts ever were from my uncle John and they were actually, he'd bring over American league baseballs, you know, brand new white American league baseballs, which very rarely did I take outside to have a catch. Cause if you drop it, it's dirty now. And I, you know, I loved it. So bright and white, but he would, he could buy me a big bicycle. He could buy me, but as long as I got those couple white baseballs every year, I was in heaven. I really was. That's great. I, I, we're, we're kind of the same way that way. I remember getting a, a really nice brand new national league baseball in my early years at ESPN. And, uh, one of the guys who ended up eventually working with us was somebody that you are well familiar with as a former Philly and elsewhere, Jim Kitty Cott, who's, one of the great, great men in sports of, of all time. And I had this National League baseball for probably seven or eight years in the original box. And one day I was, I had my fanboy moment and I asked Kitty, would you mind signing this baseball for me? And he looked at it and it's like, man, this thing's not new. I said, you know, I didn't say it to him, but I said, well, neither are you. Cause he pitched till he was about 48 years old, I think. Jeez. I remember Whitey Herzog who managed him in St. Louis towards the end. I remember he was busting his chops one year in spring training because I was with with Kitty doing a shoot and Whitey and Whitey wasn't the most friendly of guys. But with the players, he was. He's like, ah, Kitty, you're the only guy I know that collecting your pension and you're still playing. <laughs> he was that old. <laughs> That's a good one. Before you got to the NBA in 86 or 85, right. 86, I'm not sure. You officiated in the CBA for a number of years. And I know that because you lived in the greater Philadelphia area, a lot of times for travel, they would assign you to games that were somewhat close geographically to where you live. So you did some games in uh, Albany, I believe, along the way, where you had some encounters with a future Hall of Fame coach that uh, um, became known for a couple of teams that he coached to championships. So tell us a little bit about some of your memorable encounters with future Hall of Fame coach, Phil Jackson. No, I'd say one thing, you know, what's so funny. I, I, when I think of Phil, I, I mean, obviously you think of what a great mind, what a great coach and so on. When I encountered him, obviously in the CBA, it's basically just two guys trying to make their way to the NBA, him as a coach and me as a referee. So I, I, the encounters we had were, were many, like you said, because Albany was only a 50 minute flight or a five hour drive to get to Albany and back. Uh, to referee these games. And Albany had an interesting arena. It was actually in an old armory. And the army armory, they set up a basketball court with temporary stands around the court. And you had the dressing rooms. We actually dressed in the bathrooms down like two, down two levels. And the players, they had, they did have dressing rooms somewhat um, down one level. So it was kind of like really weird. You had to go up all these steps to get up to the, to the armory and referee the games, but Phil, Phil was a challenging guy. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I, I've had that one encounter. I think I, you and I had talked to, talked to you about it one time, one encounter with Phil. Um, he could, he could be vocal and you always knew his voice because there's such a deep raspy voice, you know? And so we're in Albany one night and I'm working actually with Joe Borgia, my friend, good friend, Joe Borgia, who just retired from the re running the replay center for the last number of years. And I remember, I had hit Phil Jackson with a technical foul in the first half. Obviously, he wasn't liking much of what I was doing out there. And at halftime, as we we're walking down the stairs, the players were in front of us. They walked down first and the coaches. And as we were passing the coaches, the locker room, Phil Jackson had the door still open a little bit with his head stuck out. 
and yelled something that I couldn't say right now to you. And he yelled it at me and he slams the door. So we go downstairs to our, I never, we go downstairs to our locker room and I looked at Borgia, I go, did you hear what he said? And Joe goes, yeah, I heard. He says, what are you going to, Joe says to me, he says, what are you going to do? I go, I'm going to throw him out. And Joe says, well, how about this? How about we just give him a little rope and maybe like just let him know we heard what he said and then let the second half go. And I go, no, I'm throwing him out. And so, so we get up there at halftime. And of course the players are up first, referees are up next or, and now Phil comes, I see him walking up the steps. Well, I figured I might as well, before he gets to the bench, I might as well let him know that he's not going to be able to coach the second half. So as he's walking towards the bench, I head him off at the pass. And I said, um, question to ask you. And of course, in that voice, yes, yeah, Steve, what? I go, did you say what I thought you said to me at halftime? And I gave him a chance. And he says, yep. And I go, well, just turn right around and go back to that locker room because you're not coaching the second half. And know what he did? Didn't say a word. He turned around, walked right down the steps, back into his locker room. But it's funny. It's, it's just one of the story, many stories. But Phil and I, even when we got to the, the, uh, the NBA, because we had such so many games, we worked together uh, in the CBA. There'd be times that he'd be yelling at me or questioning me. And I remember one time saying here, saying the NBA in the LA arena, Steve, that's the worst call I've ever seen you make. I go, now, nah, Phil, remember back in 1984 in Albany, New York, that one, he's, oh, you be quiet. I, so I, we would have a joke. We, I think we had a really, I personally think we had a very good professional relationship. I enjoyed his, um, uh, his commentary at times. He, here's one little story that he said one time when he was in L.A. And I, I just looked at him as I ran down the court, and I'll tell you what I said. Lamar Odom goes to the basket. And misses the shot. I'm in the lead position underneath the basket. Misses the shot. He actually, when I see, when I see it on tape afterwards, I missed the call. He got fouled. But I didn't blow the whistle. And as I start going up the court, he yells at me, what do you got, a dog whistle tonight? Well, I just start, I started laughing. I had to take my whistle out. I started laughing. And so at the first time out, and this is even before the first time out, I said, you had that saved up. I said, you couldn't even save that for later on in the game. You had to get that out right away. You know, but uh, I think we had a really good relationship because I, he, he respected me as a referee. And I really believe he respected, um, you know, like how I took charge of the game and ran the game that way. Because many nights I had ejected players on his teams and he wouldn't even say a word. He would just know that, you know what, that was my line. I drew my line and he respected that. And I respected him as a coach, too. So I think we had a pretty, really good working relationship there. And I, I wish the guy well, whatever he's doing now. And I, it'd really be fun to sit down and actually talk with him right now, now that we're both retired. I, I would enjoy a conversation with him. Boy, if, if I could ever find a contact info for Phil and he would actually do it, I'd call you first and say, hey, let's do this thing, <laughs> right. you know? And yeah. uh, and 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 I'm sure we wouldn't have to bleep any of your comments. We might have to bleep some of his. <laughs> but hey, that's why we tape these things instead of doing stuff live, right? That's <laughs> true. So when you were officiating in the NBA, I remember you you showed me your whistle. It said it had number 29 on it. You wore number 29. Did they assign you that number? Did you choose that number? What was the deal with 29? Yeah, 29 is a special number in my heart because that's my dad's number when he officiated in the NFL. Um, for probably, I'm going to say, dad was in a league 30 years. So I think 28 of those years, he wore number 29. I think the last two years, they redid the numbering system where each position, like referee had number one through the 15. Uh, back judge, one through 15. So you could have two number fives on the field. Why they started that, I don't know. They stopped it a little while afterwards. So, But my dad was always number 29. Um, and I remember my first year in the league, I was assigned by the NBA uh, number 30. And there was another gentleman uh, by the name of Mel Whitworth from Tex Texas. He had number 29, but he was just in the league one or two years. And Mel and I were pretty good friends because we refereed the CBA together and went through some you know camps together and so on. And I still remember... Um, asking Mel during my first year, uh, Mel, does that number 29 mean a lot to you? And he said, no, not really, Steve. And I said, well, and I told him the story about that's been my dad's number almost his whole career. I would really love to surprise him and, you know, get number 29 and wear that. It would mean an awful lot to me. Well, Mel Whitworth said, Steve, next year, I'll surely I'll be glad, you know, to, to trade with you. Well, 
unfortunately for Mel, he was let he was released after that year. And so when I called up the league office and after Mel was released, not to jump in his grave that soon, I don't want to mean to say that, but I asked uh, Matt Winnick, who was the main man for the referees. I said, Matt, could I have number 29, you know, this year instead of number 30? He says, Steve, you realize he was fired. And I go, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't intend on being fired. I just want the number, you know, and I got a cute little story for you um, with my dad and number 29. Um, so I had the number changed. So my second year in the league, um, I had the number changed to number 29, but I didn't tell my father. All right. So I didn't tell my dad preseason comes for that year, my second year. And I have a game in Philadelphia. And so I wanted to do something special for him. Uh, and actually Jess Kersey, uh, rest his soul too. Jess Kersey gave me the idea. And what I did is I framed a, a shirt with the NFL and a framed a shirt with the NBA and had number 29 in the frame on both sides. And I presented that to him prior to going down to the game. And so he opened it up. And my dad was a man of not many emotions whatsoever. He's just a very, you know, matter of fact kind of guy and so on. And he opened it up. He goes, what's this? I go, dad, I changed my number to be your number, number 29. So you're always going to be with me. And he really didn't say much. I know he was touched by it. Um, and over the years, when I was refereeing, he would have so many of his colleagues that used to work with him say, Stan, I see your son's got the same number as you, you know? So I'm sure he was very proud of that. You know, and, and I was, I was very proud to wear number 29 because I know he was um, held in very high esteem also with regard to football officiating. And it was just great to carry his number on my back all the time. Well, I'm sure uh, he was unbelievably proud of you, not only because of you, you honored him with the number, but you honor him with the man that you are. And I'm, how could he not be proud? Thank so, you. Bruce. Sure. So you mentioned Joe Borgia in relationship to the old CBA, CBA days. And also you spent plenty of time with Joe in the replay center in Secaucus. Joe's dad, Sid, was a very legendary old school NBA official. You told us all about your dad, Stan. So did you guys ever exchange stories as the sons of officials about fatherly advice you all received as far as handling the job? Yeah, every once in a while. Sid, Sid, I mean, if you, as you probably do, I know, was this little guy, but he, they said he was one of the feistiest men. I, I met Sid just on a, a couple of occasions prior to him passing away. Um, but the stories I would hear through Joe and through other people about Sid Borgia, literally coming into halftime, and taking a jersey off a referee saying, you're not refereeing in the NBA anymore. I mean, this is how feisty and fiery Sid was. You know, there's no doubt about it. Um, I think it's, my dad was more, because basketball obviously was a full-time, even, even back then, traveling they did and so on. I guess you could have a part-time job once in a while. Or, uh, but football, my dad was more of a, uh, you know, full-time job over here, part-time as an NFL official. So he was more in the professional world and so on and so forth, where Sid, I think, was just Sid came from this, the gymnasium, the fiery guy and so on. Uh, so I think Sid's advice to Joe was just don't take any crap from anybody, you know, and he would tell you that my dad would probably say the same thing, but in different words. Um, here's a funny story. One time, too, my first few years in the NBA, I was single. I wasn't married. My Mary Ellen and I hadn't been married yet. And on road trips, I would come home and sit down and just rehash some of the games. And the reason being is that my dad would always tell me, Steve, officiating is the same no matter what sport you do. It's a matter of controlling the game and the players and the coaches. Simple as that. And how you control your emotions and all. And as you well know, at times early in my career, I didn't have, I really control my emotions too well. All right. And that might be a big understatement. <laughs> but and we can get to that as we go on. But I would um, be very aggressive, probably call technical fouls when I shouldn't have, lose my temper, all these things, check, 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 that I just well, were, you know, had to work on. And so I'd come home. I remember this one road trip. I came home and unbeknownst to me, Jerry Seaman, who was the one-time uh, supervisor of NFL officials, was sitting there with my dad because my dad was a kind of an uh, advisor to Jerry and helped him out with some things in football still with the NFL. So those two are talking. I walk into my dad's living room and then my dad looked at me, and goes like pretty tough road trip, huh? I go, yeah. You know, so he stops his conversation with Jerry Seaman and we start talking about Steve, because obviously he sees the highlights on ESPN. 
me losing my temper, you know, going after a coach or a player. And he's telling me like, Steve, you can't do that. And he's, you know, give me his advice. And he's right. And he's right on all the advice. There's no doubt. Well, all of a sudden, Jerry Seaman interjects and he says, excuse me, Stan. He says, but the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> well, my dad, I swear to if if he could have strangled Jerry Seaman, he would have. And I just said, thanks, Mr. Seaman. And I left the room. I left them talk to themselves. Um, but oh, I know my, my dad was a no nonsense kind of guy, too. Um, but he would never to say that he ever lost his cool. But um, but he was uh, he was a guy that took care of business, too, on the floor, on, on the field. Quick story, too, Bruce, if, if I may. Sure. Um, in, in my house, with, uh, dealing with my dad when we used to when he used to referee in the NFL, I had an older brother who was six years older than me. And the thing was, is my brother would always take my when he got his driver's license, would take my dad to the airport and then pick him up on Sunday evenings. And it was just a rite of passage in our house when he got to be 16 years old. They know you could do that. So when I turned 16, I said to my brother, I got dad now. I'm going to take him to and from the airport. And so I would. And I still remember picking my dad up one Sunday, Sunday evening. And dad gets in a car. And it was a game back when that division, when Bum Phillips was the coach of uh, Houston and Chuck Knoll, you know, that division, how great that division oh, was. Yeah. And it's a playoff game. I think the Steelers were playing the Oilers in the Houston Astrodome. My dad comes in. I pick him up. He sits in the car, we're driving home and says, how'd everything go, dad? And he goes, everything was fine, Steve. I go, dad, what's wrong with your voice? I says, you don't have a voice. And he says, well, the first half, he said, the Steelers were a pain in my butt. And he said, I was all over there yelling at the coaches and all. Second half, the Oilers were a pain in my butt. He says, I was getting, getting them in line, yelling at them. He says, what a great game. I loved it. He said, it was really <laughs> fun, you know? So it was, um, he was, a, he was a guy, I, mean, I, I admired my father for a lot of reasons. The least of it was as a official, even though he was one of the best of his era of his time, but also as a man that he was and the integrity that he had and everything. He just taught me so much about life and about officiating. You've said in the past that uh, somebody asked you in an interview at one point in time, do you get nervous before an NBA finals game, whatever? And you always said, no, I don't have any problem sleeping at night because I'm prepared. And you even, I think, mentioned how, you know, it wasn't uncommon for you to take a pregame nap uh, the day of a game, whatever. So now you're a performer of a different sort in the replay center for the highest profile games on ESPN and ABC. So do you ever get nervous before a game where you know you're going to be in the replay center? I get, I do. Yeah. To answer your quick, quick, yes, I do. Um, and, and the reason being is the fact that I want to, and I, and I think even before the like, finals games, I would, I mean, I'm going to qualify by saying I would get the butterflies, the nervousness, the excitement, not to the extent where I couldn't sleep, like you said, mm -hmm. because I was prepared. I know I was prepared to referee that game, but I think it's the fear of failure that gives you those butterflies. And I'm sure in your, in your job too, Bruce, when you were producing and you still with your job now, you get that excitement about it because you want to do a good job, number one, and you don't want to, you want to fail. You want to succeed. Um, with regard to the replay center, I get nervous there because I want to make sure, because when they ask me to come on at times, it's, it's within a second's notice. A play could happen. They go, Steve, you want to comment on that? We're going to come to you. And I just want to make sure I have the right rule in my mind. want to make sure I have, and I make sure I give the information to really inform the fans of why the official called the play, how could he have missed that call maybe, and how to explain it to him. So I do get nervous that way because I'm gonna, I want to make sure that I explain it properly. And there have been many a time that after I'm off the air, which I'm on for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, if that, um, at times that I sit and think as I'm driving home, I said, ah, I could have explained it this way better. I should have done this better. And I just try to keep a log in my mind. And actually, I keep a log, I have a copy book and all too, of, um, of the kind of calls that they've been, they tend to call me on. So this way I know, know the rule, how to explain it. And when the rules change, I got to try to stay on top of it too. So, so I do get a little nervous because I want to make sure I do a good job for, you know, ESPN and ABC. It's got to be like walking a fine line sometimes in that position, because you understand the speed of the game. When people watch replays, it's slowed down to like one fifth of the speed. And it looks so clean and clear when it's going in slow motion, but that's in no way related to calling it live for real. So there are times that it seems like 
you know, it's almost like the announcers, and I'm not saying they do this intentionally, they're almost kind of begging you to say the official screwed up or whatever. And you are pretty restrained in that you kind of play it straight and you say, well, this is the situation and this is why they did it. And I think that's valuable for the viewers to hear because it's, I mean, a lot of these guys are people that you know, they're your friends and you can empathize with, look, you've admitted many times, I got a call wrong, I got a call wrong, but you don't want to like, like flog some guy in public for something that's really a bang, bang play. And it, you know, it's just the way it goes. Yeah, you're right, Bruce. There is a fine line. Um, luckily, I think um, over the years of officiating, and I know, and even though now the staff is turning over more and more of our, some of the names I see, I really am not familiar with. But for the most part, I think I've earned the respect of the officials that I, that I worked with that are continuing to work in the NBA, where they know that I wouldn't call them out on something like an announcer would knowing, like you said, the empathy that I've been there before. I'll try to put it in a way where if somebody does miss a call that's really that blatant, I will say that I'm sure when he watches the tape, he'll wish he had the whistle on that play. Or, you know, that. so I'll, I'll try to put it in a way where it's not like, how could he miss that call? Because I know how I can miss that call. First thing I do most of the time when a, a guy does or I think he might miss a call is I just go right to the replay and look at what angle he had. And nine times out of 10, he's not in an angle where he can really see the play that clearly. And he's either, if he doesn't blow the whistle, that's, that's one thing. That's the reason why, or if he does blow the whistle, he's either trying to guess on the play or using his experience. So, um, so I'll just try to explain. I know one time Bob Soundly, who works for ESPN, I didn't know Bob. Good friend. Uh, we, we did it. We did a thing of like the angles of the official on a certain play and coverages. And he put that up actually on the screen and showed it. He goes, Wow, Steve, you're right. Neither neither the three guys, none of the three guys could actually have the angle to see that play because I think the announcers were saying, well, how could they miss that? Look how obvious it is. And just at that time when that play occurred, every guy there, the three guys, the three referees, were either blocked out by some other player or were just not even looking at the play, totally not looking at the play. So I try to just point that out a little bit. And you're right about slow motion. I mean, it's so easy now by frame by frame by frame and you go, it just doesn't happen that way. It really doesn't. And these guys are these guys are good. I mean, uh, even when I'm in the replay center, refereeing all those years, I'll sit there and go, ooh, it looks like that guy got hit. I mean, as an in my mind, and I'll run it back myself, not that I'm going to go on air with it. I run it back and I go, how about that? He didn't get hit. Now I'll run it like two or three angles. And of course, plays happen like that. And you've got to make decisions. And these guys are really good at what they do. And they make a lot of good decisions. So we discussed earlier about how you come from a family of uh, sports officials, uh, dad and your uncle, but you also grew up in a region, southeastern Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area in particular, where, you know, a lot of great referees have come through. Is it a coin? I mean, like Florida produces incredible football players. Southeastern Pennsylvania, you know, produces outstanding NBA referees coincidence no coincidence is it explainable um i think it is explainable i really do and it's it's um it's ironic you brought this up because there's a gentleman in the philadelphia inquirer called frank fitzpatrick uh writes for the sports page of the philadelphia inquirer just did a story on it bruce um about how many officials have come from uh, philadelphia southeastern pennsylvania or even very close surroundings and so on and and it's funny, he interviewed Ed Rush, he interviewed Joey Crawford, Jake O'Donnell, he interviewed me uh, and a few other guys and asking our opinions of it and so on. Of course, I think guys like Rush and Crawford or, or uh, O'Donnell would have even a more, more knowledge of it because they go back further than I do. But to go back to when that was, when there was only, when I first came in the league, there were two referees on the floor, I was like, the 30th guy in, on the staff, 30, there's only 30 referees. And I think like nine or 10 were from the Philadelphia area. I'm, it was incredible. And so um, I think what it was going back, the good basketball was being played on the East coast, Philadelphia, New York, DC. Mm -hmm. And I think when these guys started refereeing, you get, you become better as a referee when you referee good basketball players, there's no doubt. If, if back in 1960, if you're, if you're refereeing in uh, Dubuque, Iowa, you know, you, you're not going to referee any good players. Or if you're even in California at that time, maybe they didn't have any 
professional leagues, like here, the Baker League or the Rucker League in New York, you have players coming back after the season to, to play and to work and they needed referees. Guys would get experience and become better referees um, by, by doing it, by refereeing these players. And then also you'd have these guys who are in the league already, like an Earl Strom, a Joe Gishu, uh John Vanek. And if they worked with a younger guy who felt they were good, they would call the league office and say, hey, I just worked with the Bruce Bernstein, man. He's a really good young referee. Keep an eye on him. And they would trust these guys because they knew what they knew that they knew what good refereeing referees were. And I think that got passed along. Joey Crawford, he found Duke Callahan and Mark Wonderlich. Mark Wonderlich was refereeing a game right outside of Joey Crawford's backyard. There was a playground. And he goes, and Joey's just a basketball junkie. Joey's watching a game and he saw Mark like in his adult league. He threw out like three or four guys. Joey went down and said, do you ever think about refereeing in the NBA? And Mark's like, what are you talking about? Who are you? He didn't even know who Joey Crawford was, you know? And then he got, he got, he got Mark Wonderlick to camp. He got Duke Callahan to camp. And it's just a thing where I think that Philly guys, number one, that they, the play, the play around the area was always so good that the referees got better. And then also they passed the craft along. Um, I mean, a lot of my mentors like Joey Crawford, Ed Rush, Jake O'Donnell, you know, Jack Madden was from a Jersey guy. He went to Ryder University, pretty close to Trenton University, Trenton here. So, um, you know, yeah, a lot of guys who are just uh, good referees and they like to pass the craft along and also knew a good referee when they saw one. So you mentioned Joey, who uh, you've called him a mentor, but he's also a contemporary of yours. So because you did a lot of your careers ran concurrently for, for a good number of years. So tell me a little bit about how that relationship started and developed over the years. And what are some of the things that, you know, that, that Joey, you know, as a mentor helped you out with? Yeah. I, he, Joe Crawford for me, uh, Bruce, I mean, besides my father was probably, um, uh, I, I'd say the mentor that I credit most with my success in sports, I mean, in officiating, there's no doubt about it. Um, how we how we started relationship is really funny. I remember I remember watching one of my high school, my old high school, LaSalle High School in Philadelphia. They were in a playoff game or somewhere, maybe down a Palestra, and there was Joe Crawford refereeing. This is before he got in the NBA. So I see this young. I mean, I was only like maybe 20 or 21. So Joey's a couple of years older than me, and here's this young guy, feisty guy, going up and down the floor and. And I was refereeing at the time, just starting out. And I looked at him and went, wow, that guy, he, he hustles. He's, you know, how Joey always hustled and so on. And then the next time, I, I never knew him, never met him then. But then the next time, the only time they see, he called me prior to, I think it was, it might have been the one time that he was on staff that they were being locked out. And the referees in the NBA were being locked out. I was in the CBA at the time, and he called me. I had ne you know, never talked to him before. And he's, he asked me, are you going to work? And I said, huh, well, wait, Joe, what are you asking me? I said, you'll know when, when I inform the league office when, if I'm going to work or not. I'm not letting you know if I'm going to tell you first. And that's our first encounter we had. So we talked about that after we met each other. He goes, yeah, he said, you wouldn't even tell me if you're working or not. You know, that kind of stuff. I said, you're right. I have to give the league office, you know, that benefit first. Then when I was hired in the NBA, my first – maybe two and a half years, um, probably 75% of my games I worked with Joe. And I, like I said, I credit my success because I learned how a referee should be. And that is how to, number one, uh, control a game. Now, does, does it mean that Joey didn't get out of whack once in a while? Sure, we all do. He's competitive. He's got a temper. I was the same, very similar uh, at, the, at the time. So maybe, you know, us working together was maybe not a good thing, but it's a great thing for me. But Bruce, to, to I, I could probably take, I don't know how long, how many hours just to sit there and say all the times that in the locker room afterwards of, I saw Joe Crawford being as honest he was uh, of saying like, I missed that call and I missed that call and I shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that. Very rarely was it ever pointing the finger at me first. It was admitting his mistakes first to make himself better, to make me feel more comfortable. And then we would talk about my game. And I remember one time uh, we started viewing videotape my first couple of years. What they would do is they'd give you a, uh, a like a, a VHS tape and you'd go back to the hotel room and you'd put it in the VCR, the rent from the hotel and watch tape. And this is how Daryl Garrison 
our boss, you know, first started watching tapes after games. And I remember them one night in Detroit, Joey and I, two-man system, and I really didn't have that good of a game. I could tell you that right now. And we have the tape, and unbeknownst to me, Daryl Garrison meets us after the game, and I'm going, oh, my gosh. We're just going to go in the, in the hotel room. I'm just going to get blasted the whole time. Well, this is the kind of crew chief Joe was and the mentor he was. He put the tape in, and what he did was critique himself more than he critiqued me because he knew that I knew that I didn't have that good of a game. And it would be so easy just to, you know, put throw me under the bus while the boss was there where he took responsibility for his mistakes more so than even talking about mine. I mean, that's just one part of how Joe influenced me and how I could become a good crew chief also, of, you know, making guys feel comfortable watching tape and so on. But he, everything he told me though, Bruce, it came actually to fruition. I mean, he told me that, you know, like people aren't going to like you. This, this team A is going to hate you in the first quarter, team B in the second quarter. People aren't going to like you. You just have to go out there, run the game. It doesn't matter about being liked. You have to be respected. That when you walk on the floor, they know they're going to get a fair shake. They might not like you personally. They might, but as long as they know it's a fair game, that's the main thing. That's our job to do. That when they leave the floor, both teams feel they've got a fair shake. So, I mean, there's so many other things I could get into with Joe and all, but that's the basics. And he was, uh, he's been a big part of my life. And personally, also, as you mentioned, personally, when we started working together, we actually started traveling together on vacations, um, say in the off season. I remember when his always, oh, gosh, he's got so many grandkids now, but I remember when his daughters were just little, little, and we're, we're going to Hawaii and I'd make him nachos. And then we do, and we still to this day, Mary Ellen and me and, uh, and Joe and Mary, we can't wait till this pandemic's over so we can, you know, spend the time together like we do going out to restaurants and enjoying each other's company. He's been a, a dear friend and a dear mentor. So both of you on occasion were known to, you know, blow that number 29 whistle and tee somebody up. And a uh, couple of players that were sort of known to be whiners, I guess, if you will, uh, both had Philadelphia connections in some way. Rashid Wallace, who grew up in Philly, Allen Iverson, who became a legendary player in Philly. Um, what's the deal there? I mean, where, where, did you ever have to tee either of those guys up? And was was the Philly thing anything you at least had in common? Um regarding those two guys, the Philly thing didn't matter whatsoever. It really didn't. <laughs> Funny you say that too, because sometimes when, when you're, um, you know, in the NBA with Kobe, Kobe Bryant, um, with, with Kobe, knowing, knowing we're from Philly together and so on, I had many conversations with Kobe um, about how he should handle and respect referees that the younger referees. Now, I was more of a veteran when Kobe came into the league, but I saw then later on in his career and later on in my career, how sometimes he would, treat some younger guys at times, which I didn't feel were, was right. And I would go and talk to Kobe about it. And he was very respectful. Look you right in the eye and say, I understand, Steve. Thanks for telling me. Really great. But then there were some guys like the, the aforementioned guys that you just met, you know, talked about that it didn't matter. They, they just, they couldn't help themselves. I mean, they just, uh, they got in the way and you know what, they were very difficult guys for me to handle personally. And you just have to, you know what, Regardless, you just have to you have to do your job. So uh, when when people talk about well, a superstar and Allen Iverson was, uh, he gets the calls and you hand. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, but I had I had lines I drew as Joey Crawford told me. You draw your line. If they step over the line, you have to penalize them. And that doesn't mean technical foul at the time, but it means maybe the first time a warning, maybe it's uh, whatever it may be. But you have to make sure that you control the game. And if you control somebody like an Allen Iverson or you controlled somebody like if say hypothetically, if Michael Jordan got out of line, other players would see that and they would respect the fact that you would take care of the suit, take care of the superstar in that way. And not just what they call, thought was the 10th man on the bench. Certain guys I know have to be much more difficult to officiate. For instance, somebody like LeBron James, who's such a physical presence, he plays through a lot of contact and a lot of times he probably gets fouled and, it, it almost, it's like a rushing a mosquito away for him, you know? So when you have to officiate a game with LeBron, do, does his strength sometimes maybe lead to no calls where maybe a lesser physical guy might get a whistle or is that really kind of an impossible question? 
No, it's not an impossible. That's a, that's a very good question and very good observation. Um, Shaquille would be another one, anybody that's strong. I'm sure Wilt was that way too when he played, when Wilt Chamberlain played. The stronger you are, maybe it is a disadvantage for being playing through contact because what I would deem an, uh, incidental contact, why would I put somebody on the line which I consider incidental contact where somebody maybe who wasn't as strong, and, and it's, it's, it just makes sense that if somebody is 180 pounds, Versus somebody who's 270 like Shaq or 260 or something like that, LeBron and built um, that little bump to me as an official, I have to just every, every piece of contact we have to remember is not a foul. And I have to now in my mind decide what is a, what, what the consequence of my whistle. This is that, is that contact meaningful to the play? Did it prevent him from finishing the play or not? In some situations it would for somebody who is a lot not as strong as Shaq or not as strong as LeBron, but for Shaq and LeBron, you're right. Their strength probably was a disadvantage. And I don't think that's wrong in my mind because it didn't affect his, what they call like his balance, his speed, his quickness in order to make the basket. And some contact is incidental and some contact, you know, is penalty. You have to penalize it's illegal. So, and so their situation, it's a really good observation, Bruce, that the stronger you are, you're probably not going to get, that call that somebody who's maybe not as strong, but it's just, you know, it's just the way life is. Right. I want to get into your current position as a deacon in the Catholic church, but before that, I have one more basketball question and I promise we're going to get to that. Your career pretty much ran, you know, you started in 86. Michael Jordan was probably in his second or third year at that point. And you then refereed pretty much his whole career, including his final game. Uh, do you have any memories or any specific memories of working with Michael or interacting with him along the way that, that stand out? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, first of all, I think that he, I personally feel that he handled us with uh, pro professionalism and respect, you know? And, um, and so if he ever had anything he wanted to say to us, he wouldn't try to bring the house down on you. Um, one thing I really respected was the fact that he came every night to play. I know they say about LeBron, you know, coming to play and the fans, but I know that um, Michael knew that he was the show and wherever he went. And I just gave him a lot of credit because I'm sure out of 82 games, I'm sure there had to be at least a handful of games. He didn't feel like playing, if not more, but he realized that the people paid the money uh, and he, um, and he, and he performed, you know, so and I and I did give Michael a few teas in my day. Never ejected him because I think he was smart enough that he knew that if he's ejected, he's doing his team more harm than anything else. So he was smart enough to realize it. Um, he, I, I, we, we, um, we, we had a good relationship. Matter of fact, I'm just trying to think of a story, and I've never told this to anybody outside of, like, say, my family and friends because this is something we shouldn't do as referees. And, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell it anyway. I'm going to tell it anyway. Since Thank I'm you, almost 10 years out. World exclusive coming up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they can't, I don't think Stu Jackson can't find me now for this. You know? <laughs> but I, um, I was just getting done. I was actually refereeing a playoff game. It was Mark Jackson was actually playing for Indiana at the time. It was in Chicago. My wife and I had a, a family here, ha have a family here who have two sons with, cerebral palsy. Uh, one's in a wheelchair, one's not. And, and they were younger at the time. They were like teenagers, maybe, you know, maybe like, maybe like 12 and 14 or something. And they were Michael Jordan fans. And they always wanted to see Michael Jordan play in person. Well, I get a call to get assigned this game, this playoff game. And my, Mary Ellen says to me, maybe you can get a couple tickets and we can take the boys, you know, like in the, to this game in Chicago. And I said, that's a great idea. So I, try, I tried and I got tickets. So the two boys and the mom and dad come to the game in Chicago. And they, this is before 9-11. So now I could get them passes to be backstage, as they say, right? And they would have a little corral back there where the players would walk out. And some players would stop and sign autographs, you know, that kind of stuff. And some players wouldn't, but at least the fans could see the players walking down the, uh, the tunnel. So I got the passes for the guys. And, um, and so now the game's over. And just for some reason, that the game, which was great, I mean, it turned out great, where 
it was a blowout. The game was nothing. I mean, so the officials had nothing to do with the game. Nobody's upset with the officiating. So it's working out. But now I see the kids, you know, one in a wheelchair, one wanting to see Michael Jordan, wanting to maybe get an autograph or something like that. And I never, ever once asked for an autograph, never once for anybody else. I would always maybe get a ticket for somebody to have them ask them for an autograph. I would never do that. I would never compromise my position. Right. This time I'm sitting there looking at these, you know, one, one young man in a wheelchair and the other one and their faces and all. I'm going, oh, my gosh. And Jordan was always the last guy out. All of a sudden, here comes Jordan. You see the throng of reporters and they're Jordan. And I'm sitting there going, like, what do I do here? These kids will never – Jordan's going to walk right by and the kids – and what I did is I uh, – he caught, he caught my eye. I actually st- stepped down and he caught my eye like, Steve, what? And I just turned and said – I have a couple, a couple of young men over here like to say hello to you. And he looked at his song and he walked away from the reporters. He went over, signed an autograph for them, took pictures, a picture with them. These kids were, you talk about, you, you've made their kids lives. I mean, it was incredible. It was just, and I'll never forget that. I really won't, that he didn't have to do it. He could have just said, hi, wave to him. Or but he took his time to go over because he saw they were compromised a little bit and he just wanted to make them feel good. And I, I brought that up to him, Bruce, one time, you're not going to believe this. Remember when he was the uh, assistant captain with Freddie couples on the president's cup. Okay. They had, they had, matter of fact, we were locked out at the time. I was still refereeing. We were locked out at the time. My wife and I went to the president's cup in San Francisco, went to the hotel where the players were. Cause a friend of mine's son was on the president's cup team, Sean O'Hare. And so we went over to the hotel. I mean, security was tight and all that stuff, but we were going to meet down in the lobby for like a beer or something. And who do I see sitting there holding court at a table was Michael. All right. So Michael's holding court with his friends. And I look, and, uh, he doesn't see me because his back is to me. So I go over and I bump his chair and he kind of moves in a little bit and I bump it again. And he finally turns and looks, he goes, Steve Jabby, what the? So I, we start talking and I told that story. I says, you know what? And I, I jumped in on this conversation. I said, excuse me, folks. I know he's probably telling you how great a basketball player he was. I said, but I want to tell you a story. And I just reiterate, I just told him that story I told you to them. And I said, so not only was he a good basketball player, but he was also a good humanitarian, a good person that he, he cared so much that night. No, he looked at me. He didn't remember the story. He looked at me and goes, Steve, that's very nice of you to remember that. I said, Michael, these two young kids will never forget that the rest of their lives. I will never forget it. You know, so so I, that's the first time I ever told that story where publicly on a on a podcast, radio, whatever, because I know the league would sit there and say, well, you can't do that. I didn't ask for his autograph. I didn't ask for his shoes. I didn't ask for anything. I just looked and said, I have a couple of friends of mine. I want to say hello. That's all. That's just makes me admire you even more because we're, we're about to move from the athletic to the spiritual here. And if, and if that doesn't kind of help explain who you are as a human being, I don't think I could possibly do a better job than that. A couple of times you have mentioned Mary Ellen. Uh, I believe this year you are going to be celebrating your 30th anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. You truly have outkicked your coverage in life. And I've always admired men who do that. <laughs> I have, yeah. So, so I know, you know, you and Mary Ellen, did you sort of bond over your religious faith at the beginning of your relationship? That's a great, great question. And Bruce really is. And you say, I outkicked my coverage. I'll, I'll give you a Wally Rooney used to tell me, he says, Steve, that's the best over the shoulder catch you ever made. You know? <laughs> said, yeah, you're right, Wally. I love that. I love that man, Wally Rooney. God rest his soul too. Um, no, you're right, Bruce. Um, if it wasn't, I mean, I look at, I look back at our lives. I'm sure you look back at your life at times and you look at the position that you're in now. And I look at the position I'm in now with regard to my sports and so on. And there are people that God put in my life that I wouldn't be where I'm at in my sports world, in my sports career, I wouldn't have been. And there are people that God put in my life that I wouldn't be in my, my spiritual career, my spiritual life, my journey. And Mary Ellen's definitely the top of the list there because when I first started dating her, um, I'll never forget, I tell the story where she worked, uh, she was a teacher by, by, by her profession, but she worked also part-time for the airlines at U.S. Airways. And so going in and out of the airport, I would see Mary Ellen at the airport. And she'd see me and we would converse here and there and so on. And I, believe it or not, I was really, when it came to women, I was a shy guy. And I, I, was, you know, I was actually like, you know, 
especially around pretty women like her. Um, and I was really concentrating on my career and all, but now it's like, all right, I'm like 30 some years old. And as my dad would always tell me, he goes, Steve, you're 30 some years old right now. You're not getting any, any uh, better looking. You're getting uglier. He said, you know, <laughs> um, so, so it took me a while where I had the guts to um, ask Mary Ellen out and um, knew that she was a practicing Catholic too. And by that, I mean, not one that took her faith lightly. She really adhered to the teachings of Christ in the church. And, um, and I found that out just by meeting her. And she was the one that really turned me around and got, got me to look inward at my faith. And what am I doing? I saw, Bruce, what I saw in her and her family and her mom, especially too. Um, I saw just these people with, who were just joyful people. They were just, you know, great people to be around, cared about other people. Um, cared about things in the world of injustices and so on, and the most vulnerable. And um, it made me stop in my tracks and look and go, wow. So she, um, she is the one, and, and she'll tell you, she didn't push me on it. She didn't do anything. I just observed. And sometimes by observing the way people act, you want to be like them. And I said, basically looking at her saying, I want to be the kind of person that she is and, and got into my faith more that way. So I started going back to church, after I met Mary Ellen and since then just has kind of, uh, you know, gotten to where I am today. So would you say that, that she helped start your journey towards becoming an ordained deacon in the, in the Catholic church? It's funny. I tell her that I tell her that Mary Ellen, I would not be where I'm at in my faith journey as a deacon without you. And she goes, she always says, God would have found you. I said, I don't know, but he, I'd say he sent you out to find me. I know that that's for sure. But so yes, Bruce, I would say I probably um, would not be in a deacon in the Catholic church if it wasn't for Mary Ellen turning me around into my faith. So as a married man, you're not eligible to become a, a priest, uh, you know, at least under the current rules that possibly could change according to news that I've been reading. But as a married man, that wasn't an option for you, but becoming a deacon allowed you to serve. So as a married man, do parishioners ever ask you moral questions involving the faith that maybe they wouldn't feel comfortable asking a priest? Yeah, I think that's where a deacon in a church really um, has maybe an advantage over a priest at times, whether it be just in conversations, you said, or advice, um, experiences, and so on. I think a lot of people will feel more comfortable because it's like, well, I'm sure he's gone through this himself where maybe you think the person who has this problem thinks maybe the priest couldn't understand. Although we have, let me tell you something, we have a lot of good, good priests that, I mean, even with people of counseling them with marriage and so on and so forth um, are very good at what they, you know, what they do. But I think a lot of the congregation, they do feel sometimes more comfortable uh, that they can relate to the deacon because what a deacon has, as we say, is they have one foot in the church and one foot in the congregation. And they're like the bridge. You know, the deacons are the bridge in the church that bring the church and the, and the people together. And, uh, and I think people feel, feel that way. And also the same way with regard to in preaching, too. I think I can um, sometimes reach them in a more practical way. I mean, there's some wonderful priests who have great um, homilies and um, their theology is phenomenal and so on. And I maybe not that good that way, but practic practical wise, I can bring some practicality within my, my homilies and my, my sermons. So in, in your homilies, I know that, you know, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about them and how, you know, the, the, the plan on a, on a weekly or biweekly basis is to deliver a homily that is some sort of a relation to the, the readings of that particular weekend, whatever. So have there ever been any homilies where you said, gee, how do I write a homily to describe the, the, the trials and tribulations of 18,000 people yelling at me, Javi sucks. Is there, is there a way for you to ever work that in? Or do you sort of consciously avoid trying to do that for whatever reason? Yeah, I, um, I haven't related that story yet, but I, I, I have related some other stories with, with regard to Bass. But I think there is, there is a connection because you can't be afraid on the court to run the game and manage the game and not worry about what negative uh, feedback you're going to get. And I know nowadays, especially with social media and so on, these it's like, and they, they don't know what the rules are. These people who are commenting on social media to these referees nowadays have no idea what the rules are. They're just fans of the game. Pardon me. Um, 
and I can relate it almost to preaching. You're not going to make everybody happy. When you preach the truth of what Christ taught, there are going to be people who are going to give you a little, because they, they're going to like, whoa, 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 that teaching, you shouldn't be mentioning that in here. And so, so there are times that I've made people unhappy, I'm sure. And well, I know I'm sure, because some people have made comments to me. But as long as I know I'm preaching the truth, then I'm not preaching any heresies. And that's what I talk about with my pastor. My pastor is the first one to stick up for me. He says, you preach nothing that was heretical. You preach exactly what the church teaches and so on. And I think the 18,000 people chanting that got me ready for maybe just a few people who actually, you know, when they, when they come at you, it feels like 18,000. It really does. Cause you think you're doing um, my homilies. I truly believe Bruce. I can't, I really can't do it. I call on the Holy spirit. I call on God to help me with this because I'm not equipped to do this. But if you want me to do this, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but you just have to guide me along here and give me, you know, uh, inspire me what to say. What, what do the people, I always pray, inspire me, Lord, what you feel you want the congregation to hear this week. Inspire me to say what they need to hear and so on. And inevitably he doesn't fail over prayer, over com reading commentaries, over, you know, writing and so on. But there are going to be a few people who are not going to be happy with sometimes what you say. And um, I've had that happen. And it doesn't feel good, but I know that that as long as I'm preaching the truth, I can't go wrong. Just like in refereeing the game, as long as I'm giving people a fair chance and, and, and refereeing honestly that they can win the game, that's all I can go with. Since the pandemic kicked in all, almost a year ago this week, um, people have been less able to circulate in public and they've spent a lot more time at home. So have you noticed any changes where families are becoming closer and more religious as a result of our shared adversity, shall we say? Oh, that's, a, that's a good question, because usually the question is the opposite. Do you see people not coming to church? Um, I, you know what? I, Bruce, I think only time will tell. And really, it's hard for me to judge right now, because I see, um, you know, families coming back. Our church is getting uh, more and more people, it seems like, each week, which is nice. And I, there's, I know there's still some people who, um, who are still uh, cautious. Uh, and then there are some people who, and I truly believe this, that are just, we're just coming to church to they go check the box. I have to go instead of, you know, wanting to go to for praise and for worship's sake and so on. Um, so I think that's still, um, time will tell. I mean, I think there are people who have grown and I think even not just really, as a family, they've grown because they've been together, which is a wonderful thing. And also there are families who are torn apart because of maybe certain things have happened. You hear about maybe some abuse or whatever it may be, or uh, all different ideas. So I think time will tell about how, um, how faith has happened or how faith, have their faith increased during this pandemic. I sure hope so. You know, uh, you've been unbelievably generous with your time and have been so, you know, gracious to me. I just want to re remember something here. I remember the first time we met, okay? It was long before we worked together. You probably won't remember this because you probably had this experience many, many times. But it was in an airport. It was probably during the NBA finals or maybe traveling to an all-star game. Uh, I just walked up to you because, you know, you're somebody that I was well aware of as a basketball fan. And I remember how gracious you were to me just as a total stranger. And then when we worked together at ESPN, you were the best possible teammate. And I just want you to know it is a privilege for me to be your friend. And I appreciate you sharing your thoughts about faith, about basketball, about everything with me today. Steve, I cannot thank you enough. Well, Bruce, uh, I, I, I thank you for the kind words. Um, I really do. And I, and it's funny, every time I mention your name, Mary Ellen and all, she smiles and so on too, because how gracious you've always been with me, Bruce, of like taking me who I know nothing about the industry that you're in. And as a producer, I still said to Mary Ellen, he actually put me on a set one time with Tim Legler and, and the host of the show. I says, this guy's crazy. What's he? I says, I, I, I'm horrible. I can't do this. I don't know what he's doing to me. No, but you have always been a person that welcomed me. You, you, you are, you are, if, if someone were going to say, show me a friendly face, it's Bruce Bernstein and welcoming. You always were so welcoming to me, Bruce at ESPN in Bristol. I could come into your office and you always had a smile on your face. You would never, I mean, you're always, you, but you treated everybody that way. That's the way you've always been, Bruce. You really have. So I thank you for allowing me to do what I do now, because without you accepting me at ESPN and years, years ago, 
I wouldn't have been, I won't be in a position I'm in now of helping to educate the fans and giving them a different perspective. And I thank you for the opportunity. And, uh, and Bruce Bernstein, you're always one of the good guys, man. I still remember a good, a nice dinner we had with me, you and Tim Corrigan in San Antonio. We had a nice dinner that night, a nice conversation. And they're the times that I, I, I always remember. They're the memories I remember. The games sometimes, people have to remind me of the games. It's the people I meet along the way, and you're one of them, that I miss not seeing. Well, thank you, Steve. You're too kind. And one of the things I remember from that dinner, Silver Oak. Ah, uh, yeah. Still my favorite. You know, still out of my price range, but still my favorite. Yeah, I, I looked at how much that bottle of wine costs, and I think Cargan probably got stuck with the tab that night. But you know what? <laughs> Yeah. That's the way it should have been. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. Let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thanks to my guest, Steve Javi, who spent 25 seasons as an NBA official and is in his 10th as a rules expert for ESPN and ABC. Steve is one of the most self-aware people I've ever known, and his honesty and integrity as an NBA official were always his calling cards. Now, as a deacon in the Catholic Church, his leadership and moral compass make him a great role model for his parishioners. Thanks so much for listening to Pure Thoughts from Pure Hoops Media. Until next time, I'm Bruce Bernstein. Pure Thoughts is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 